Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Paul Shari of the Center for a New American Security on Artificial Intelligence and Arms Control. But first, joining us is Dr. Harlan Ullman, a retired U.S. Navy captain, strategist, and prolific author who is also the chairman of the Killowan Group Consultancy. His 11th and latest book is The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad How Massive Attacks of Disruption Became the Looming Existential Danger to a Divided Nation and the World at Large. His latest commentary uh, is on our website, uh, a national security strategy that is viable and affordable. Uh, Harlan, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate having you on the program. Good to be with you. You do great work, Pago. Uh, thank you very much, Harlan, and uh, deep sympathies uh, on the passing of former Defense Secretary Ash Carter, who passed away suddenly last night in Boston uh, of a heart attack at age 68. Our deepest condolences to the Carter family, uh, and we will discuss his life and legacy uh, on this Friday's uh, Washington uh, Roundtable. And Harlan, want to get your thoughts as well, because I know you worked uh, closely with Dr. Uh, Carter as well. Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo, DRS, and Safran. Uh, Harlan, uh, thanks very much again for joining us and, of course, for uh, your piece uh, that's up on our website. Uh, your critique is on the national defense strategy, which has not yet been disclosed, although the national security strategy is out and clears the way for the NDS to come out. Um, other re reviews will be forthcoming as well, including a nuclear posture review. From your standpoint, what's your, uh, you know, your point is that the NSS uh, you know, this NSS mirrors past national security strategies, and your expectation is the new national defense strategy will also mirror the last two national defense strategies. Uh, from, from your perspective, what's your critique uh, of the current NSS, and what's your expectation of the NDS? We have a strategy that doesn't work, and we can't afford it. That's the basic bottom line, and unless or until we recognize that, we're headed in the wrong direction. The national security strategy is a continuation going back to the Obama administration and followed in the Trump administration. And the fundamental problem is that the national security strategy is not a strategy, it's aspirational. It's a list of things that we'd like to do, but it is not sufficient to drive policy or force structure. And so therefore the national defense strategy, which in the past was to uh, compete um, contain, deter, and defeat major adversaries, including Russia and China, and, and today will be to compete, deter, and defeat Russia and China if a war comes, uh, are not <laughs> achievable because they're not executable. And the reason I say that, Vago, is how do you define compete? How do you find, define deter? How do you define defeat? In terms of compete, please tell me how we're meant for the military to compete. And from what are we deterring the Russians and Chinese? Uh, Russia was not deterred from going into Ukraine. The Chinese have not been deterred from wolf warrior tactics from building up their Navy and militarizing the various China seas. And how do you defeat an enemy in a war that could be thermonuclear, which everybody agrees it's a war that cannot, should not be fought and not won. So the strategy, it seems to me, 
is aspirational and it's not sufficient to drive force structure at a time, and we'll get to this shortly, of very constrained budgets. Um, and, and uh, you know, many people who listen to our program and are familiar with your work are, are familiar with your critique of this. This has been a decades-long uh, criticism on your part that strategies yeah. are less strategies. And again, aspirational, Dove Zakheim, uh, who's a regular on our Washington podcast, made the same thing, that, that the NSS, you know, nice work, but aspirational more than uh, realistic. From your standpoint, what's at the heart of the problem and what do we need to be doing differently if we're going to get this right? Because uh, right, it, the outlook for defense spending is not as rosy as people think, you know, especially if there's a Republican uh, victory uh, in the House and Senate, uh, given that Republicans have already said, hey, you know, defense isn't going to get a blank check any more than the Ukrainians will. Well, the problem is you have a strategy that's not executable and you have a finite budget. Next year, we're going to spend $850 billion, which is not enough to afford the current force. One of the major reasons is uh, what is called uncontrolled real annual cost growth of five to 7% a year just to sustain the current force. The reason is very straightforward. Our weaponry is the best in the world. It's also the most costly, $15 billion for an aircraft carrier, $100 million for an F-35 fighter. These are superb weapon systems, but we can't afford so many of them. And the most expensive item in the budget is people. And we're already having recruiting and retaining problems. And so unless you're gonna be able to spend an additional 100 or $150 billion a year on defense, we're ultimately headed to some form of a hollow force that plagued us after the Vietnam War. So we need a profoundly different strategy. And the dilemma is in the midst of having Russia and China as adversaries, are you prepared to make a major change in strategy knowing or at least should be recognizing that the current strategy is unaffordable. Uh, you and I have discussed this many, many times, uh, but again, sort of recap for the audience, um, you know, how do we need to think about this and what is the kind of strategy uh, that we need, right? Because strategy is about trade-offs. You could simply spend more money, but we're not going to do that, which it's means gonna you're going to have to start thinking. Yeah. And the solution is, is, is very straightforward. What do you want to do in case of war? You want to do, and the Ukraine war is very, very important here. Look, Russia is not going to attack NATO, but if it is, and it attacks the Balts, we need to put in place what I call a porcupine defense that would make an attack so bloody that the Russians wouldn't even consider it. In the Pacific and Asia, what we need to do with China is to keep them within the first island chain that runs basically from the Sea of Japan through Taiwan to the Tonkin Gulf. And we can do that. We don't need to have a strategy that aggressively tries to attack China. We want to contain it, which we can do. And therefore, we can cut it off because it is entirely dependent, as Japan was during World War II, on outside support for all its logistics, food, and the rest. So those are much more sensible strategies. As I outline my book, we could probably do it for about a million people in active duty, down from 1.4 million and a budget of say 650 or $700 billion a year, which would deal with the affordability issues. At the same time, we keep a force that's capable of combined operations to seize and retake territory. So we'd have this dual strategy. And as I said, this works far better. It's not confrontational. We're saying outright, we're gonna defeat Russia and China. Supposing Russia and China said to the United States, if we get into a war with you, we're gonna invade you through Mexico and we're gonna defeat you, what would our response be? So we've gotta use a little bit of common sense and strategy that will work and is affordable 
And as I argue in my book, The Fifth Horseman, I believe this will work. And, and one of the other points that uh, you make, right, is that we don't even have the right kind of weapon systems. We're getting focused on these expensive platforms as opposed to having weapons that give you that reach and actually that, that uh, deterrent uh, margin, right? Because how's China doing this with vast quantities of longer range precision weapons? You would actually turn the tables on them in order to be able to use that as a deterrent hammer, if you will. Well, absolutely. The point is that they outgun us in terms of China, the DF-21 has far greater range than our aircraft carriers do with their F-35s. The point is, let me put it this way, how many alternative carrier battle group decoys do we have? In other words, can we saturate the region so that the Chinese will see a snow screen on whatever their sensors are? Uh, I, th I think that's a very good question. And instantly there are people <laughs> in the audience right now, uh, Harlan, uh, wondering whether or not we would cross any classified thresholds. But, it, but exactly your point is, uh, is, is well taken. No, I've argued uh, for that. I argued for that during the Cold War. This is nothing new, uh, right. and, and the trouble is, if you go back at, at American strategy, we went into the hollow force in Vietnam simply because we collapsed the force, couldn't pay for it. Then we came up with a very, very good strategy to take the Soviet Union on in terms of what was called deep strike, deep attack. But that strategy failed in Iraq second time because it didn't account for the, the insurgency that was gonna take place. And after 20 years, we had to withdraw from Afghanistan. So even though we had an appropriate strategy for the Soviet Union, it was not appropriate in terms of dealing with Iraq and Afghanistan. The problem here is I don't think we have a strategy that's adequate for dealing with Russia and China, and we certainly can't afford it. Let me, um, we've got about a minute left uh, and uh, we know we are all stunned uh, at Ash Carter's uh, sudden passing. Um, somebody who uh, yeah. was an extraordinary individual, an extraordinary intellect, uh, did focus on putting uh, the department on an on a innovation yes. path, uh, obviously, which was one of the important parts of his legacy. Uh, from your standpoint, as somebody who knew him for decades, um, you know, your, your sense on Ash, his life and his legacy. Uh, in 30 seconds, it, it, Ash cast a giant shadow intellectually and as a person. And his loss is, is not something that is going to go down very, very easily. It's a tragedy. We wish his family well. And Ash will be remembered as a great person and a great contributor to America's national security, deservedly so. Um, I, I think one of his uh, most uh, profound uh, observations as a uh, first order theoretical physicist, uh, uh, Harlan was uh, on our first meeting uh, when he became uh, acquisition chief, uh, said, you know, um, what people aren't getting right is time is our most precious commodity. Uh, and and we're, we don't look at time and factor time into our plans. Uh, given that everything we need to do has to happen a lot faster than we've been doing it. Well, let me make a point um, here, Vago, because time is the enemy. How long does it take for a program to become a program of record? We started designing USS Ford exactly. 25 years ago. That is intolerable when companies in the private sector turn around products in a matter of days and weeks. The Department of Defense needs to do that, but the current bureaucratic system makes it impossible, which is a further issue that contributes to why we have a strategy that's not executable and also unaffordable. And how we make that work in a country that's so divided politically is something that is really helping Russia and China and hurting us. We need a sensible debate on defense, but I'm afraid that's impossible. And all I can say is we're headed in the wrong direction. And this is not a problem of the Pentagon. 
it's a problem for the country. Uh, in, in, indeed, Harlan, uh, always a pleasure having you on uh, Deepest Sympathies uh, on Ashes uh, Passing. Always a pleasure having you on uh, the program. And indeed, uh, the, right, the, the good news is I think that people recognize that time is important. And so you see whether it's uh, Frank Kendall or anybody else in the department talking about doing things more quickly, you know, Congress doing so. The thing about it is we actually have to do it. The good thing news is after decades of folks talking about it, there are more who are sort of inculcated in the vision. The, the, the bottom line reality is, you know, we have to stop talking. We have to start doing. Uh, so thank you very, very much. Thanks so much for joining us. And everybody, please uh, go to our website and check out uh, Harlan's thoughtful piece uh, and check out his book, uh, which is uh, extraordinary if you're uh, familiar with his work. Harlan, thanks so much again. The Fifth Horseman, you bet. All right, that was terrific. And joining us now is Paul Shari, the Vice President and the Director of Studies at the Center for a New American Security. He is a former U.S. Army uh, soldier who is also one of the world's leading minds on artificial intelligence. He and Megan Lambert are co-authors of a new report from CNAS, Artificial Intelligence and Arms Control. He is also the author of the upcoming book, his second for Battlegrounds Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, which will be out in February. Uh, Paul, thanks so very much for joining us. Paul, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, indeed, and it's uh, it's been it's been too long, so I'm very very happy to have you on the on the program, um, Paul. You're one of the world's leading thinkers on on AI, you know. And last week we were at the Association of the United States Army's uh, annual meeting and, and trade show, and and people sort of have a th- tendency of sort of throwing around and sort of misunderstanding really what AI is. I mean, before we get into uh, arms control and what does it look like. You know, what, what is AI, what is it able to do, and what is it not able to do? Because people, you know, uh, to invoke Heather Penny of the Mitchell Institute, right? I mean, there's a tendency of thinking of AI like pixie dust, and you sprinkle it around here and there, solves all your problems, haha, and you move on. And it, that's not exactly the case. What is AI, and how is it we need to think about what it is and what it isn't if we're going to control it or to take advantage of it? No, great question. Um, and thanks for having me on. I mean, certainly uh, AI is not, it's not pixie dust. It's not magic. Um, there's a lot of excitement in the air about AI right now because there's been a huge explosion in artificial intelligence and machine learning over the last decade or so. Um, at its core, when we talk about AI, we're talking about machines that have the ability to perform some kind of intelligent task. Um, now, the field of AI dates back to the 1950s. And you can think of it as really having two big waves or eras in AI. The first is rule-based systems that take a set of handcrafted rules written by human experts to perform some kind of task. Great example of this is a commercial airline autopilot. So there's a whole set of rules written by pilots, computer scientists, aerospace engineers to say, in this given situation, this is what we want the airplane to do. And these rule-based systems are really embedded in all aspects of society, things like tax preparation software. We're very familiar with them. We really don't think about it as AI. There's this sort of saying that once something works, it's no longer called AI anymore. We just think of those things as computer programs. But that's really kind of the first era of AI. And the kind of next era, which really kicks off, it's been around for a while, but kicks off in a big way in 2012, is machine learning. Now, the field of machine learning has been around for several decades, but There's been a huge explosion in the last decade in using machine learning, and in particular, deep learning, which is a type of machine learning that uses deep neural networks, where machines, instead of having a set of rules to follow, 
machines are trained what to do based on data. So you take a data set that characterizes what you're asking the machine to do, and then you train the machine, or in some cases, say this neural network, to learn from the data, to identify patterns embedded in the data, and then to take some action as a result. Good example of this is object identification. So right. it turns out if you have a, a try to set a you know write down a set of rules for identifying objects, that's actually really tricky to do. But if you just feed in enough pictures that are labeled with different objects, take pictures off the internet of cats and chairs and people and automobiles, and you feed thousands of these images, thousands per item, millions of images total, into a neural network, and then you train it to learn based on these images, the neural network itself actually learns to pick up features of these images to distinguish them. And it's a very powerful method for creating intelligent systems. Uh, we've seen people use it to build intelligent machines to identify objects. Uh, the US military has used it in Project Maven to do games like Go with AlphaGo. Right. Um, and increasingly to do things like language processing, actually writing text that uh, looks quite believable, um, can, can convince people that it was written by a human. So very powerful method, uh, still not magic. Um, it's just very, very powerful statistics right. computing. And, and and where is this uh, right? I mean, and one of the reasons you're writing this report now, uh, as, as usual, as is your case, right? You try to beat people to the punch by a couple of years. So where is the technology going and why is it important for us? You know, where are we going to be in five years? Which is why we need to start thinking about these issues like arms control and perhaps an arms control regime. Yeah, well, certainly we're seeing uh, just really remarkable progress in the field of AI and that progress is continuing. It's not slowing down. Um, so there's, of course, a time lag between what's happening in research labs and kind of the state of the art systems and then what's happening out in the real world. Um, and arguably even a little bit more lag uh, for militaries, given some of the challenges with military bureaucracies and importing some of this technology. But it's worth keeping in mind, the Defense Department's first AI project in Project Maven was five years ago. So we already had some simple forms of AI implemented today uh, in military applications and things like object identification. But you know, going forward, if we look at the state of the art, people are building these really massive AI models, huge, huge amounts of data sets, hundreds of gigabytes of data, um, increasingly combining different types of data in multimodal models, so not just text, but also images and video, and combining these together and building these very large models trained on thousands of GPUs, thousands of chips for weeks at a time. And these models are able to do some really impressive things in um, understanding language tasks, in generating language, generating images. Uh, some listeners might have seen some of these image generating models online like Dolly or Stable Diffusion, where you basically type in a line of text, uh, what you're looking for, and then it'll generate an image, uh, which in some cases can be really artistic and really quite compelling. So, right. you know, these systems, I wanna be clear, they have nothing like the generality of human intelligence. Um, even the most advanced systems today are a far cry from human intelligence. But we are seeing them become increasingly capable and increasingly valuable in a whole variety of applications. Uh, so AI is, uh, along with uh, autonomous weapons, fully autonomous weapons, um, and hypersonics, fall into the category where thinkers are recommending that we create, you know, be be before we all get uh, into trouble, 
um, you know, we need to start thinking about arms control approaches uh, to, to this. What's your case for having an arms control approach for AI? Well, um, I wanted to dig into this project because, you know, for a decade or so, I've been part of conversations around things like autonomous weapons, where people would kind of throw out examples historically about arms control, um, either arguing for or against the viability of arms control with new technologies like autonomous weapons, or more recently with AI. And, you know, sometimes people would point to examples of, you know, pretty egregious failures, like, well, look, the the Pope tried to ban the crossbow and that didn't work, which is true. Right. Uh, two popes did, and it, it seemed to have zero effect on the spread of the crossbow across medieval Europe. Or well, people well, well done example, Paul, right? Nothing right? like an infantryman uh, yeah. going for the crossbow <laughs> example. Well done. Yeah. The, it's a favorite <laughs> one, right? People love to point to the crossbow. Um, but there's other ones too of successes. People will say, well, you know, what about uh, more modern day bans? on chemical and biological weapons or blinding lasers or landmines or cluster munitions, none of which are perfect, um, but have some compliance. And, you know, maybe there is an opportunity for arms control. So, you know, we wanted to, for starters, just look at the historical record and say, okay, what, you know, what is actually out there? And um, looked at a variety of cases dating back to antiquity um, to see what are some common patterns in successes and failures of arms control and what lessons could we draw for new technologies. Um, in particular, what did that mean for AI? Because one of the, the challenging things about AI is it is so diffuse. Um, it is such a general purpose technology that it's, you know, it, it's even sometimes AI is compared to other general purpose technologies like electricity or the internal combustion engine or computers, which you can imagine you know, controlling the spread of those technologies be very difficult. But in some ways, AI is almost even more general purpose. It's almost a better analogy would be like industrialization. Um, you know, it's a whole suite of technologies that came out of the Industrial Revolution, uh, the first and second Industrial Revolution, both, right, that led to industrialization. So if you were saying like, I want to control that, that's pretty, that's pretty tricky. So we wanted to better understand, well, what lessons could there be um, the answer, I think, is that it would be difficult, uh, but there might be some cases where arms control for some AI applications could be possible. Well, so um, you got you uh, uh, you and Megan actually uh, have a a sort of thoughtful approach on right. Here are all the different arms control models, right? What are the models? And as you said, right, this is such a wide field. What what's the most practical? You know, like what's the most achievable model? to use to try to control it? And what are the kinds of AI that would be controlled, right? And I want to get to how you would actually enforce such a regime in a second. But but what's sort of the right way to think about it, the right model to use, and the right elements of AI to control? Because as you said, right, it's sort of like electricity, right? I mean, you're not going to ban electricity. Right, exactly. And that's the tricky thing. So I think a good way to think about this is to think about the sort of life cycle of a weapons development. So you have um, the underlying technology, and you can control that. A great example of this is the nuclear non-proliferation regime aims at controlling access to nuclear enrichment, right? So right at the stage of the underlying access to the underlying technology. Um, you also could, you know, the next phase would be if you have access to the technology, the weapons development, you develop the weapon, um, and then production, uh, or the quantities, the stockpiling of the weapon, 
and then actual use on the battlefield. And there are examples of arms control at each of these stages. Um, many non-proliferation regimes aim to control access to the underlying technology, but there are others, um, the bans on uh, landmines and cluster munitions and blinding lasers, for example, they don't aim to prevent access to that technology, but right. simply state, say they're not going to build it, right? So we're not saying you don't have the capacity to build a landmine. We're just saying the states are promising not to build them. There are others like uh, many of the uh, nuclear arms control regimes during the Cold War and since then, like START and New START, say you can build some of these things like nuclear missiles, but we're going to limit the number of them or in some cases, how certain weapons are deployed. And then there are some that actually just about by battlefield use. So they're saying, well, some regulations say you can use weapons in these ways, but not other ways. Uh, those are some of the trickiest in terms of compliance in war, uh, because oftentimes there's a slippery slope to using it in one context and then using it in another. Um, but there are some arms control regimes that have focused on just the use itself. And, and and so, right, I mean, going back to kind of your crossbow example, right? I mean, this is all about trust, but verify. And there hasn't really been, you know, I mean, um, you know, before we got started, we were talking about the Mayflower uh, Naval uh, uh, Naval Limitation Treaties. And let's put it this way, not everybody was as candid, for example, how they calculated tonnage and, and how uh, what the displacement of their ships actually were and how the United States was actually maybe one of the, the better actors overall and how it apportioned it. Long story short, how how do you go about doing this at a practical level, right? So once you identify that which needs to be controlled, how do you go about doing it and 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 controlling it in a way that that works and is verifiable? Given this is kind of a proliferated technology and is only going to get more proliferated, right? It's a little bit like controlling unmanned, but you know, un, un, unmanned or remotely piloted aircraft, right? At, at this point, the Iranians are helping the Russians out, right? Uh, with with deadly fifteen hundred kilometer range, uh, you know, long range strike assets that are effectively UAVs. How, how do you do it? Yeah, well, in some ways, it's probably even harder than controlling uh, drones or, or unmanned aircraft because um, a lot of the AI technology is in software, right? So, right. Um, you know, you, you can get a cheap drone online, like a quadcopter, not going to be as big and capable as a more military-specific drone, um, but you could just download trained neural networks online. If you have some reasonable programming abilities in Python, you could apply them to different things. So, um, you know, I think with the exception of hardware, which we can turn to, some forms of hardware might be controllable. Um, controlling the software is just not very viable. Um, but there might be opportunity to control certain applications of AI if states could agree, hey, there are certain applications we're going to take off limits, uh, like they have for things like blinding lasers or using the environment as a weapon or placing uh, you know, nuclear weapons in orbit or on the seabed or other types of uh, agreements that we've had in the past. Um, the real, one of the really difficult things for any kind of arms control, uh, but it's really acute for AI, is verification. How do you get states to be willing to restrain themselves when their restraint is probably conditional and knowing their adversaries are going to do the same? Um, and how are they have the ability to know that their adversary is also holding back on this? For a lot of things, um, you know, say like nuclear missiles, you can use satellites to verify whether your adversary is complying. 
um, AI is going to be much harder because it's often embedded in the software. Um, you know, there's a couple approaches that we we suggest that states might consider. Uh, by no means do I want to say this is like a solved problem. This is, in some ways, the crux of the problem with AI. Um, one approach could be that states could adopt some very intrusive verification regimes where you know, countries are doing inspections and they're opening, right. you know, very, you know, missiles and looking inside at the components of it. Um, this only works if the functionality is embedded in the hardware, because if it's in the software, one, it's going to be extremely difficult to try to even understand what the functionality is. Um, and two, if it's in the software, you could just update the software after the inspectors leave, right? And you can update the software quickly and at scale. Um, so that's, that's really weak. But if you had some you know, uh, thing where the functionality that you're trying to control was embedded like on a chip itself, and we're seeing increasingly specialized chips, maybe that's a route to go. I'll be honest, I think it's a pretty weak, you know, lever because states are going to, I think, be pretty reluctant for that. Um, another right. avenue would be to look at things that are physically externally observable. So if you were, for example, concerned about these sort of smart, autonomous, small drones that could attack people, like swarming anti-personnel drones, Rather than try to regulate the level of autonomy, which would be very hard to do because you can't necessarily see from the outside how autonomous it is, another approach could be to regulate the physical size of the system itself, of the, of the platform, and right. say, well, drones with a lethal payload that are below this size, you know, they have these characteristics, we're going to assume those are anti-personnel because you know, they're not going to be effective, say, against a vehicle, and those are banned. And we actually have historical examples of this where a lot of the um, treaties against missiles are aimed at nuclear-capable missiles, uh, missile technology control regime, intermediate uh, range nuclear forces treaty before it you know, was uh, defunct. Um, they were aimed at WMD-capable systems, but they actually just, the restrictions were on the missile payload and range. And right. so they didn't distinguish between whether there was a nuclear warhead on board because you can't tell externally. And so they just looked at these kind of external characteristics. So that could be another approach. Um, you could also regulate the behavior of autonomous systems. So let's say you were looking at uh, autonomous ships out on the high seas. The U.S. Navy has the Sea Hunter that's um, you know, out, been out used in the ocean and in a, in a real world environment. Other countries are certainly building autonomous ships. You could come up with the rules of the road for how the ships are supposed to behave, just like there are uh, regulations about how, you know, crude ships, the people on board are supposed to avoid collisions. And, you know, you could leave it up to countries to figure out how they do the internal programming. What you're really looking at is externally, does the system behave the way that we're agreeing it should behave? Um, probably strongest, that kind of agreement in peacetime, um, in wartime, it's going to be a lot harder to regulate that kind of behavior in war. Um, but it might be a, an effective mechanism in peacetime to avoid, you know, accidents or miscalculation among adversaries, particularly as we see more autonomous air and maritime systems deployed. Um, uh, and the, the last thing I guess I'll say is um, the, uh, the place we really have perhaps the most point of leverage is on the AI hardware, because the AI is not, you know, it's not actually happening in a cloud. When we say the cloud, we mean a physical data center somewhere. Um right. And a lot of these AI models, particularly the state-of-the-art ones, are very compute-intensive. They require thousands of 
you know, GPUs that are, that are running for weeks at a time, churning out these models to train them. So they're very computer intensive. And that might be a way to actually have an effective non-proliferation regime that can control access. Is you actually control access to the physical hardware. Um, and and one of these uh, challenges, right? I mean, that you get these agreements when everybody sort of looks, you know, all the poker players at the table look at each other and go, wow, this is a really problematic group of folks with a lot of problematic capabilities. And and that's what drives you to, to these kind of international agreements. We have less than 30 seconds left. Uh, talk to us about how the Biden administration is actually kind of controlling AI through hardware already through some of the moves it's making against China? Well, th- that's right. So the new export control regimes that just came out from um, the Biden administration effectively do this against AI chips to China, where the administration leveraged the fact that um, even overseas fabs in Taiwan and Korea have U.S. components in them. Uh, the administration used an export control regulation um, to basically tell even overseas producers, you can't ship these advanced AI chips to China, um, which is effectively a non-proliferation regime against these high-end AI capabilities at the hardware level. Uh, so that is, we're already actually seeing some elements of this being put into action. Paul, uh, always a pleasure uh, talking to you. Thanks so very much uh, for being so generous with your time. Really appreciate it and, and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me.